live in love. So apparently I put it on um, upside down, I'm sorry. All right, I hadn't had my coffee yet. Um, so, <laughs> coffee, uh, relevance, let's go. It's good to be here with you guys today. It's super, super good to be here with you. Uh, just earlier this week, I was talking to a few friends of mine from England, and I was like, uh, oh yeah, you know, I'm preaching today. And, and they know that I work on Sabbaths, you know, on Saturdays here. They're not, you know, Christians, right? But they know that on Saturday I come here and I work here. This is my community. And they know that we have two services because we share everything. And they know that, like, I'm doing young adult in the morning in, in a first service. And then second service, I usually do, you know, the youth side of stuff. And someone told him, like, yeah, I'm preaching. He said, it's like, oh, it's like, so you get a break? <laughs> I'm like, ah, I'm like, I don't know. This is me last night. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Please help me, but it's good to be here to share a word with you. I am a little bit nervous this morning. Um, I'm nervous because, <clears throat> though I am convinced of the message that I have today, I am fearful that I'm preaching to myself more than I'm preaching to anyone else. And that's always kind of like, it's, you know, your professors tell you that that's good, but I think what it missed out is that it scares the Jabibis out of you. Did I say that right? So I'm learning American words. Um, <laughs> I'm learning American words. But I'm excited. I'm excited nonetheless. I'm excited to think through what it means for us to be relevant people in a world that some would say do not find what we do, do not find who we are, do not find what we say relevant at all. Put your hands up if you ever felt like you wanted to say something at work, maybe, and you wanted to say something about your faith, about your, and then you did it. Anyone? Is that just me? I'm like, uh, I'm going to tell them about Jesus crucified and rose on a, you know, on, a, on a Sunday. It's like, they don't even care. It's an important conversation to have. And this is why for our church, for our community, from the love world theology, we've got to deal with what is relevant and what isn't. It is imperative. It is imperative. And so pray with me as we engage into this conversation with the Bible. Lord, we are grateful to be here one more time to listen to your word in the hope that somehow in all the words that we're going to hear today, some of it is going to make sense to us and some of it is going to connect us back to you. It's going to connect us back to ourselves, perhaps. It's going to connect us to the people around us, to our spouse, our children, our neighbors people that live on the other side of the world. And that perhaps for once again, once again today, we will be able to see a clearer picture of what you are doing in this world. That's my prayer. It's my hope. I pray this prayer in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> in, uh, just make sure I get this right. There we go. In maybe let's say about 30 years ago, a little bit less, in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge Union College, in um, Cambridge, you, you know, the Cambridge University in England, writer and activist 
I should probably say phenomenal writer and activist James Baldwin finds himself in one of the most prestigious places in the world. This is the place where the smartest of the smartest go to debate what's relevant and what isn't. He's there in front of philosophers, masters, teachers, artists of the highest caliber. And his task is difficult, but it's simple. Make a case for why you live the way you live. That's it. Make a case for why you live the way you live. Make a case for why you do what you do. In front of all these people that have all sort of ideas about whether it's right or wrong and why you're right and why you're wrong, these people that know a lot more than you, that speak a lot better than you, you have to make a case. And there he is, James Baldwin, slender-looking, gentle fellow, about to make a case for why Segregation needs to end in America. For why people like him and millions of other Americans need to reclaim their humanity. Talk about a task. Have you ever had to do something like that? Had to speak? to people about some of the most fundamental things about who you are, the core of your existence, things that are most important to you. Anyone? Hi, is my wife here? No, she's with a kid, so listen to this, right? <laughs> I had to, um, you know, some of you who are married here, men who are married know that at some point, you kind of have to go to the parents. It's not like you're asking, hey, may I marry you? You know, we're not, you know, we're not like, and, 23 AD, but you kind of still have to do the respected thing of just going and saying, hey, I love your daughter, and like, I really, really love her, and whatever it is, and I, wanna, I want you to, you know, to, to bless our wedding, our marriage. Anyone ever had to do that? Just me? All right. Now, my wife's not here, so I can tell you this, right? But at the time, I was living in Madagascar, and she was living in... in, in in the US, and for the most part, we hated it because we were so far away. But this was the one time in our relationship, like long distance relationship, I was like, yes! I don't have to talk to her parents. I can actually write it. Because I'm a much better writer than I am a speaker, right? When I'm speaking under pressure, right? Like, which I found out a few months later after I wrote the letter, and they were like, wow, amazing. Wow, we never met the guy, but yeah, sure, let's go, right? But a few months later, there I am in a US embassy having to make a claim for why I get to marry one of their citizens and get to move to this country. And he asked me, he's like, what do you love about Caitlin? I'm like, ah, what? This wasn't in the notes. You know, when you look at the notes of like how you, you know, to go to, a to get a visa and stuff, you learn about like, hey, like your education. Tell them that you speak English well. Tell them that you have dreams of changing the world one day. Tell them those things. No one's asking you about why you love your wife. And so there he is. You know, and he's like, why do you love Caitlin? I'm like, um, what do you mean? Why do I love Caitlin? And he's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Why do you love Caitlin? And so there I am, like, oh, I, I don't know. She, she's into Avatar. Yeah, that's pretty cool. She's like a pretty chill person. Like, um, you know, we read books together. I don't know, like, this. All right, and so there he is, having to speak to something that is fundamental to his existence. One of the most important things about his life. 
His life itself. And he's having to speak and try to convince hundreds of people in this crowded room about something that most of us will be, well, you don't even have to defend that to you. And yet, sometimes you do. That's the way of the world. Our text for today finds Paul in a very similar place. Paul finds himself in Athens. He's in front of his, basically, think about where James Baldwin was, but like for the Roman Empire. He's where all the big scholars had walked past. He would, like where Aristotle had stood, he was there. And he was there about to make a speech about why he lives the way he lives, why he does the things he does. But I think for us to get a, a better idea of what's actually happening, how critical this is, we have to understand that he's actually not planning to be there. James Baldwin had time to prepare his rhetoric, to write things out like myself. He had time to think about, how do I convince these people to let me marry their daughter, right? Like, I'm just, I'm going online and looking at poems and all that kind of stuff. Like, James Baldwin does a little bit of that, but Paul doesn't. Paul's not even supposed to be in Athens. He's only there for a little bit while he waits for his friends to come and pick him up. Right? His mission was to go and preach in these, these other places, Thessalonica, Bera, or Beria, whatever you want to call it, he's out there. But like, then people start threatening him, threatening him. They imprison him. They beat him up. And so he has to like run away, and he's in Athens. And like, all good, responsible human beings would do, instead of resting and hiding, he goes into the main court, he goes into the synagogue and starts preaching this thing that made people angry. Paul's going to Paul. And before you know it, there he is. He's been invited to defend his faith. He's invited to get to the core. No wasted words. You don't get to three months to write your dissertation here. No, no, no. You have 10 minutes to make your case. You've got to be concise. You've got to be precise. What you need to do is to get to the core of what you're trying to communicate to the world. Why do I do what I do? Because of this. Think of it this way. Imagine that this would have been the only thing that any human being ever heard about God. And Paul had to say that thing. That's where he's at right now. Remember that? Um, what's that, you know, Eminem song? All you have is one shot. <laughs> That's it. That's four. <laughs> one shot. Got to get this right. And he's, he, he gives a message. And this is a message for the philosophers in a building, but it's also a message for the street cleaners. This is a message for those who are wealthy in the Athens community and those who are poor, begging. Those, this is a message for those creating the, 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 the statues of the gods and those who worship them. This is for the orphans, the mother, the teacher, the artist. It's for everyone. He's got to make sure that it's not just for the intellectuals. He's got to make sure that it's not just for, for, for religious people. He's got to make sure that everyone understands what's happening, what he wants to say. This is a message for anyone who's tired and is looking for a bit of respite. 
This is a message for the person who is troubled and confused, the person who somehow feels like there's something more that they're not quite connecting to. This message is for them. This is the person who think that they figured it out. A plus B equals C. That doesn't make sense, but this is the message for those who feel something lacking in their lives, for those who cry every day before going to bed, those who can't even sleep at night because their mind is just constantly going. I'll read you the message. It's in your Bibles, but I'll read it anyway. It's a beautiful message. So we read from Acts 17, verse 22 onwards. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how religious, how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among you an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship but do not know, I'm going to tell you about that God. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though they needed anything since he himself gives to all mortal life and breath and all things. There is not one thing that any mortal has that was not given by this God. From one ancestor, he made all of the peoples to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him. You love that? And perhaps fumble about and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offsprings. If there was a title for our sermon today, this would be it, folks. For we too are his offsprings. Since we are God's offering, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of mortals. Because while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man who has appointed who was appointed by him, and he has given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. Nudge your neighbor so you can wake up now. That was a bit of a mouthful, wasn't it? All right, for those of you who are like me who have to read something 22 times before you understand it, I did that job this week. I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> That's the speech. That's the message for everyone. Nudge your neighbor and say, is that it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I'll, I'll rephrase it for you in a few sentences. We are all God's children. Say that with me. Created by God in God's image. And not even death can take that from us. We'll say that again. We are all God's children. 
created by God in God's image, and not even death can take that from us. That's Paul's most important message. This, he believes, is enough. If all you have to go on for the rest of your life in terms of the Word of God is that, Paul thinks that's enough. You can live off that, and you can live well off that, for we too are his offsprings. Can you imagine the biggest speech of your life? And there's no argument for this. There's no, hey, this is what you got, you got it wrong. This is, no, no, no. Hey, I'm going to tell the story as the story is. God created me in God's image. He created you in God's image. And nothing you could ever do could ever change that. Not even death. You've got to remember here that death isn't just like how we die, right? Death for the biblical people is the thing that's worse than sin. So before you get to death, you have to go through sin, right? So not your sins, not even that, and not even death, not even the sins of others could make you less in the image of God than you are. You could never be kicked out of God's family. That's it. That's the message. Nothing pretty. It's not even you. It's like the oldest story in the book. Like literally. <laughs> Remember? In the beginning, God created. Let's make man in our image. It's the oldest. Like he's not even trying to make it his own. He's just quoting. Quoting the Bible and quoting the poets. That's it. Five sentences. And there you have it. We should be able to go home right now. Because it's that simple. It's boring. It's simple. But I think you'd agree, it's extremely consequential. So, 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 so important. Imagine if you may for a minute that you, that I truly believed that I was the heir of God. Forget about the theology. Right now, we're not really, you know, we're not really children of God, we're creatures. No, no, forget about that. You are created in the image of God. Think about that. What does that do to your life? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do when you know you are created in the image of God? You go in the mirror and say, hey, good morning, cutie. That's what you do. You're driving on the road, and you're starting to get angry because, you know, people are driving crazy on the road, and you go, whoa, dude, it's okay. There's worse thing that could happen, like not being created in the image of God. Can you imagine if you really embodied that, the decision that you made in your life, the way you looked at your spouse, the way you looked at your kids, the way you looked at yourself, if you truly believed and somehow was able to embody that God-likeness. It's an old message, but it's relevant because, yo, we're still out here acting um, I hate using this word, but acting like rejects sometimes. I talk to 16-year-olds who have given up on their dreams. I speak to 20-year-olds who say to me, I had a great interview, but I'm not going to get the job. And I was like, why? And he says, well, because when I was a kid, I did a lot of bad things. And now I'm going to pay for my sins. Created in the image of God. 
I talk to adults who do not like themselves, who cannot get over some of the, the mistakes that they've made in their lives. I speak to parents who harbor anger towards their kids. Imagine if you truly, truly, truly believe. And this is where it gets interesting, right? Because when we talk about the, the image of God, we're not just talking about like you have God potential and all that kind of stuff, right? Like you are special, you know? No, what we're talking about is because you are created in the image of God, the redemptive power of God is always already working within you. Always. You're always being saved. You're always becoming more like Christ. Even as you take a couple of steps away from the image of God, the process is already, always already going in your life. That's what it means. My wife and I, my wife and I, sorry, my wife got my sister and my mom and I uh, ancestry uh, things for, um, you know, the genetic ancestry thing for, for Christmas, right? And the results came in two days ago. And I spent, you know, at least two hours of those two days just like looking, researching where I'm from. At first I was a little disappointed because I'm like, not anything like in particular, <laughs> like 20% this, 20% this, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, hey, is anything like, am I just like not real? <laughs> right? And so I went online and I started studying a bit about genetics. Do you know that within your ecosystem right now, within your own body, there are things that are not just repairing themselves because of the, your environment, but there are things that are repairing you from the trauma of people way before you. Can you imagine that? That as we speak, there is something inside of you regenerating life. That has nothing to do with how you live your life. That's just what was given to you. That's what we're talking about when we talk about being children of God. That whatever the best of God is, that's inside of us, overflowing with redemptive power. Imagine how, we'd look, how we would look at the others if we truly believed that they too were created in the image of God. What would that look like for our relationships? What would that look like when you drove out and you saw homeless people? What would be the first thing that came to your mind? What would it be like when you watch TV and you hear someone, you know, who, has, who shares a very, very, very different philosophical uh, 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 framework than you and they say stuff and you want to react? What would that look like if you looked at a person who said the very thing that makes you boil? Say, hey, he too, she too, they too are created in the image of God, equal to me. Whatever it is that's in me that's making me do good things, it's in them, it's making them do good things. I'm just not able to see it yet. Can you imagine? Oldest story in the book, the most relevant story in the book. Let's go, you see it all the way. It starts in the beginning, then Cain and Abel goes like, yo, that's your brother. That's my child, but you're also my child. And so uh, while there's going to be some consequences for you, I'm also going to block some consequences. Do you get it? Right? One of my favorite Midrash uh, tradition story is the story of when the Egyptians uh, were, a, you know, running after the Israelites, or running, I don't know what it was, horse riding, I don't know, chasing the Israelites in the Red Sea. And it parted, and, and the Israelites got on the other side, and the water went, 
and drowned all of them. And the angels in heaven were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jesus came down and was like, hey, yo, like, why are we, uh, why are we, what's, why are we partying? It's like, oh, the Egyptians, like, they drowned. You did it. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Do you not know that the Egyptians are my children also? They're my children, created in my image. I care about them as much as I care about the Israelites, as much as I care about the Philistines, as much as I care about the Iranians, the South Africans, the Portlandians, the people of Crosswalk Portland. Fundamental. If you need to know one thing, Paul says, know this. Know this and live this. Can I make a little note about, do I still have time? Am I late? Are we good? I want to make a quick note about coffee and lights and that kind of stuff, right? This is not an apology. This is to give people context into what we do, what we try to do here. We want to create a space where people can see themselves as children of God. That's what we're trying to do at our church. That's it. Loving well is literally to let someone know that, hey, you're actually in God's image. That's what it is. That's why we love well. We care for people because they need our help, but also because we want them to know that, hey, no child of God should be hungry. No child of God should be naked. No child of God should be crying about the death of their kids because someone else got angry and, and all that kind of stuff. We're like, no, 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 no. The reason why we want peace is because we want everyone to live the life that they were born to live. That's what it means to love well. And, and, and you see the lights and you see the coffee that we have. Do you know why we do that? We don't do that because we're trying to get people to come through and have coffee. We don't do the lights because, oh, it's hypnotizing you. And you're like, oh, this is a great place. I'm going to bring my friends. It's not. We believe that what we do here is relevant. We believe that if we do it well enough, you're able to get a closer glimpse of God and a closer glimpse of yourself as a child of God. And so when we come here, you really want you to be in a good mood, and so we give you a cup of coffee, because when you get a cup of coffee, you're in a good mood, and when you're in a good mood, you can see better, you can hear better, you can feel better. We have the lights so that when you sing, you're not distracted by the curtains. When you sing, you're not seeing some, you know, things around. No, you sing what is happening here. People inviting you into a melodic relationship with God. Because the method is irrelevant. The message is. And the message has always been the same. And it's always, always going to be relevant. Always. We are children of God. And our job as a church is to kind of see that for ourselves. I'm going to share you a little quote I read. I was reading a book on mystics and Sufis. I paraphrased it, you know, the, the mystics and ancient sages believe or believed that there were veils. Veils on top of veils on top of veils, layers of veils between us and God and between us and the other. But also veils in front of us. Imagine a mirror in front of you, and imagine that there are veils and veils and veils in front of the mirror. You can see something, but you can't see it clearly. And the sages, the mystics, believe that the duty of every faith person, every believer, is to commit 
to radically commit to unveiling the image of God, to unveil God, to unveil ourselves one veil at a time, to learn to recognize what is truly God and what isn't in the other, in ourselves. And for the sages, it's an ongoing journey of unveiling, and you get a little bit closer to what it's like. You've unveiling, oh, you get a little bit closer. Or maybe sometimes you take a couple of steps and you put a couple more veins. But because you're created in the, in the image of God, there's something in you that says, hey, hey, you know, let's come a little closer, let's move another veil. It's within us, we've got to unveil it. The second thing that I believe is, if you're a believer, it is also your duty to help unveil things for others. It's not just for you. It's nice that you get to see God, but hey, help someone else learn how to see God better, how to see themselves better, how to see people around them better. And that's it. That's the message. I'll share one more story with you, and then I'll go. Occasionally, you get to see what that looks like in person, this unveiling, right? Not all the time, but occasionally you get to see, you get a concrete example. I heard about this couple who had a 30-year-old child. Their child was 30-year-old. It's not a child at 30, but it has an accident, and something happens to his brain, brain injury, and he loses the ability to understand, to do anything. It's just there. And so they take him to a place where people can care for him. But the husband says this. It's very brave, right? But he says this. He says, hey, with time, we stopped loving our child. It's like, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's hard to love someone who doesn't respond, someone who doesn't recognize you, someone that's just there. And so we started visiting less and less we still visited, but less. We, 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 the distance grew, and, 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 and he's like, I'm going to be honest with you. We, it could have been anybody else. But then he says, but one time we came in a room, and as we came in his room, we saw someone already in a room speaking to him. And the husband said, we were like, does this person know? You know and, and, and the husband wanted to intervene. I was like, hey, I wanted to say, hey, you know, that person doesn't understand you. And then the person started reading scripture to this 30-year-old man who couldn't understand. And then he prayed for the person and then started singing songs to the person. And her husband said, hey, I, I, wanted, I wanted to tell him, hey, my son doesn't understand anything. You've just wasted your time. But he hadn't. This is for the first time in a long time that we've looked at our child and thought, this is a child of God. And what this person did for us and my wife is rekindled in us the love for our child again. And so now we come and visit as often as we can. The work of the church is to reclaim the image of God in all the people that live in this world better believe that at our church we say it this way we say a crosswalk we commit ourselves 
Oh, I've lost it. But I'll tell you what it is. At Crosswalk, we commit ourselves to do whatever it takes to wrestle with what it means to love like Jesus loved in this time, in this place, right now. It's difficult, but you've got to do it. Wrestle with it. Figure it out. What does it mean for me to be a child of God? What does it mean for my neighbor to be a child of God? What does it mean for the people I hate to be children of God? What does it mean for the people who live on the street, people who vote differently than me, people who, who believe different things than me? What does it mean? Wrestle with it and love them the way Jesus would have loved them. Because we too are God's offsprings. Amen. God be with you. Shall we pray? Lord, <laughs> Ooh, what a message. I guess I begin with uh, forgiveness. Please forgive us for the many times we've looked at people in ways that we shouldn't have looked at them, that we thought about people, that we looked at ourselves in a way that doesn't reflect your image in us. But also empower us, give us the courage to love, love well, to remember always that everyone, every single one that we meet is created in your image. And that it's our job to see that, and it's our job to show them that. That's our prayer. In your most holy name, your most gracious name, your gentle, lovely name we pray.